You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Gracious Father, for today, uh, for your mercies renewed each morning, uh, for this morning in particular, um, give us this day our daily bread. Provide for every need, Lord. Speak your word to those who, uh, who are lost or who are dead or who are weak or godless or hurting or uh, uh, somehow lacking. Lord, speak to each one of us um, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Um, we're in the middle of this series, getting to the heart, kind of taking some some snapshots out of the Gospel of Luke. Um, uh, borrow, I don't think I've even said this before yet. Um, uh, do uh, you know, giving credit where credit is due. Um, uh, Robert Capon wrote a book, I don't know, 20 years ago on the parables. Uh, and absolutely, I'm not making any of this stuff up. I'm, I'm, I'm robbing it freely from him. Uh, so it's a it's a great book. It's not the easiest book to follow, um, uh, but if you have an interest in the parables and going through them, you know, pretty closely, um, want to give it a little bit of of time and, and brain muscle. Uh, it's worth it's worth going through it. Um, the the fun part, though, it's written kind of for people that have have uh, have read the Bible before is it's not like your typical commentary. He's not simply going to sort of say like so and so said in the sixth century or in the eighteenth century or whatever else. Uh, he puts it in colloquial language. His other run does keep on really well. Um, he uh, his other claim to fame besides being an Episcopal priest, he died about four years ago, I guess three years ago, something like that, maybe longer than that. Um, uh, and a, and something of a New Testament scholar, especially the parables. Uh, was he wrote, I think this is right, it's close to right, um, uh, he wrote for the New York Times, one of the New York publications, uh, in like the Epicurean section. This was long before foodies were cool. Um, and he was uh, out and about, just sort of an Epicurean, um, a man who knew grace. And so his, his word on, the, on the, the, the parables, I think, is unparalleled, at least in my view. Uh, and, and even a lot of these titles, like I think today I called it the parties before the party that comes straight out of him. The party being next week, um, it's going to be the parable of, um, of, uh, of the prodigal son, um, of the son that was lost and was found, um, who was dead and is now alive. Um, but now, elsewhere in Luke 14 and 15, you notice there's a succession of parties. It's worth thinking about God's right hand and God's left hand, or more specifically, the works of God's right hand and the works of God's left hand. That comes from Martin Luther in his work in the Heidelberg Disputation, um, where we get the, the theology of the cross, where um, uh, in a strange, left-handed, uh, scandalous, foolish way, we find that God is rejoicing, in other words, having a party uh, for people that are just reprobates, you know, who are, who are idiots, who are lost, who are dead, who have no value, who seem to be worthless in any sense that you could have that word. And, uh, and, and it's like God delights in them in a particular way. He's like, oh yeah, I know him. Um, 
because uh, it's God's works of his right hand. I'm just going to keep going through, I think, all six weeks that we're doing this, and this is we're halfway through. Um, what are those? Um, it's just worth going over again and again and again so that in, in six months when we're not doing this class each week, and you know, you may come just one week, uh, it's good to remember. I, I remember that, you know, whatever that means. Um, God's right hand or right-handed power, right-handed work, what is that? It's work that's obvious. It's, works, it is a, it's a work that's sensible. It's a work that makes sense. It's a work that you or I would recognize where power is coming from. You or I would say, I wonder where that is. Oh, that must be from the Oval Office, or that must be from the corner office. Um, it's power that comes at you, which seems to make sense. It's the sort of thing that you or I would do if we sort of fell back to ourselves and said, I need to get X accomplished. How am I going to do that? I'm going to exert pressure on point Y and Z until my purpose is attained. It's um, it's from top down. It uh, it it works, generally speaking. Quid pro quo. This for that. Karma um, travels around so that what comes around goes around. You get a credit balance or you get a debit balance. You get a demerit or you get a what's the opposite of a merit. Um, it's it's it's. It's, it's the work of the law. Um, uh, it's a judgment that says this is what it is. It's lacking three units in this area. Um, and if it can ever be made up somehow, um, then the accounts will be made right again. Uh, it's, it's how God is going to come back. There's another way to put it. When Christ comes back the second time, when God comes back the second time in Christ to judge the living and the dead, as we say each week in the... Um, uh, in the creeds, uh, there'll be no mistake. It'll be right-handed power. It'll be patently obvious to everybody, to every creature on heaven and on earth and under the earth that that's God. So the whole George Burns thing, this is going to date some of us, um, whether it's George Burns or Morgan Freeman or anything else that sort of happens when you're a sophomore in college and you start saying, well, what if God came back and we didn't know it and maybe he's even like you or maybe he's me? And maybe God is up. I mean, you need to start going on these real sort of goofy tangents. You know, that's what I always call the animal house thing, which obviously dates again. Remember Donald Sutherland, you know, sitting there and it's like, we're all in this fingernail. Whoa. You know, you can go crazy places, you know. That ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. When God comes back the second time, so he has told us, um, there will be no mistaking. Every tongue, every tongue, whether it's a believer, unbeliever, whatever language you want to call it, Every trunk, every tongue will confess and every eye behold that, uh, that that is the Lord. And he has come to right all wrong things, to end time, and to call all things to himself. That will be right-handed power. It will come right at you. Another way to put it, I thought of this week. Remember uh, a fish called Wanda? You know, who's the guy? Kevin, 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 oh, Kevin Klein. He's, uh, he's stuttering. Here he is. And uh, uh, Ken, Ken is stuck in the, in the cement, and the steamroller is coming right at him. <laughs> coming at him at three miles an hour, but that's still right-handed power. It can be a mile away, and you're not worried yet, but it's coming right at you. You know, that is right-handed, slow-moving right-handed power, but it's power. Left hand. Everything that's opposite. All that I just said, it's that simple. You just turn it over. This is where Paul calls... You know, the wisdom of God uh, is seen as the foolishness of men, um, where things that are dead are uh, the agency, the, the, the agent 
of life, where uh, the pathway to strength is weakness, where uh, something that seems like God is absent. My God, my God, how could you have forsaken me now? How could you have forgotten me now? Christ himself cries from the cross. But we now, with the eyes to see and the ears to hear, with the hindsight of recognizing that in God's wisdom, in his left-handed work, he calls the cross the place where I am here. I am here now, in an eternal now, doing this work, not abstractly and generally, but for you, for you, for you, for me now, here, this moment, that God, who though seems absent, who seems hidden, who seems like he's far off, is near and very present and alive and at work, that we have strength through weakness, that we have life through death, that we have uh, his presence in his absence. And that I want to sort of keep smearing on us every week here, just to say that is good news. That is hope. 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 How? How not? You know, what is it? What is it that's going on for you right now? Or recently, or that your fear is about to be there? You know, for most of us, it's something with health, our own, or somebody else that we love. Or it's that fear that, what if this happened? That's going to be, in Cameron's word, that keeps bringing to us so graciously um, your worst nightmare. You know, what would that be? What would that be? The part where I might, you know, in Job's phrase, curse God and die. You know, would I, would I have enough there? Um, who will I be? And this should be a word of hope to be able to say that, you know, fear not, little child. I will not leave you. I will not leave you as an orphan. I, uh, uh, I see when a sparrow falls from the sky. And are you not worth more than a sparrow, two sparrows? Um, don't fear. You know, I'm there until the end of the age, until the end of the earth, I'm there. So in a hospital room or in a courtroom, uh, probably Paul saw, he said all these things in such memorable ways, that life happens in one of two rooms, um, in a courtroom or in a hospital room. Um, there's a lot of truth to that, um, where we feel like we're on trial, or we feel like you know I'm, I'm, I'm either dead or I'm dying, and I need um, uh, that life happens in one of those two rooms. And God wants to say, I'm at work. I may, you may not see me. It's not the right-handed power, um, but I am here. And the parables, not the big bridge, are the great, um, one of the great vehicles for that, where God, he speaks so enigmatically. He speaks so confusingly. And even says stuff like, I tell things in parables so that they that see can't see and so that those that hear can't hear. And you're just like... <laughs> I thought I read English. Wait, let me read that again. And you read it again in your small group, and you're like, am I not seeing something? And everybody's like, no, I'm seeing the same thing. So those that would perceive, don't perceive. And you're just like, what's he... It must be Greek. We need to talk to Mark Chenelette or something. And you just sort of leave, because you're just like, I have no idea. And that's a parable. It's a left-handed work where you're walking away, spun around, dizzy, asking, you know, who is this? Who is this that speaks this way? He's not a very good teacher. If I don't understand a word he's saying... Um, and yet, I can't turn away. I can't turn away when he talks in the way that he speaks, um, when he speaks in the way that he speaks. So, left-handed power, right-handed power, been looking at that. Uh, uh, 
making a bridge. Um, so we ask about parables and then look at the last two weeks. Um, uh, sometimes when we're looking at a parable or sometimes we're looking at something in life or, or another scripture or just a text or something we're trying to make an interpreter, we're figure out what does this mean? Um, what is it saying? Sometimes that's not quite the right question. Um, looking at a parable, we might ask not so much, what does this mean, but what is it doing? What is it doing to me? What's its function? What effect is it having on me? And so the first week, we looked at a, um, a painting from Lucas Cranach uh, called Luther Preaching Christ Crucified, where, where this is all Luther, like I said, his phrase, you know, God's left hand and right hand and the power made perfect in weakness and, and, uh, and that we have our life through Christ's death and you put all that and that the, the hidden God being made, being made known. Um, and so we look at the painting where God's seemingly absent, where he's dying, is in fact very present for our life. Um, so that was the first way we looked at it, where it's the effect of what's happening when the preached word falls on the ear. And somehow in that space between the preached word spoken and the preached word heard that Christ crucified, which Paul said, that's all I want to know when I'm among you, is Christ Jesus and him crucified. And we tried to ground that a little bit as the cross, the word from the cross materializes as it were. Um, between the, uh, the preacher and the hearer. And that word from the cross is that word of hope in a courtroom or in a hospital room. And then last week, um, we looked at the Little Miss Sunshine clip, um, something seemingly so inappropriate, but I thought about it, how, you know, in some ways how, how masterful that is as a parable, because you don't look at what does this mean, and you start to expl- explicate it. And you want to say, well, there's this little girl who does a striptease for a beauty pageant, and she's about eight years old, and you start to say, and she's the Christ figure? What's going, you know, and you're like, no, it's not what does it mean? And it's not an Aesop's fable where you're saying this represents that and this represents that, although you can do that some. It's what effect does it have? What's it doing to me? How is it getting to the heart? Title of the series. And we looked at that, and you realize, why am I so drawn in to this family where this little girl is being led out to her death like a sheep to the slaughter and by her stripes could her just train wreck of a family somehow be healed and she's up there being um, just excoriated and and just crucified uh, in front of the, the judgment in front of the law everybody who's watching this beauty pageant culture uh, and the demands to get her off this stage. Most of y'all are in here. Uh, and the father gets up there, and he's at that teeter point. I could do the right-handed work and say, come on, sweetheart, we don't need these people. Let's just go. We'll go to Waffle House. We'll get scattered, smothered, and covered, just what you like. And you know, we're gonna, we don't need these people. And he doesn't do that. He does that left-handed work, that strange, nonsensical work that you think, how foolish, what an idiot. And then it does something to you. And you realize, like, oh, my God, what power is being perfected in this weak moment where this train wreck of a family gets up and surrounds this little girl. And it's just something like unbridled joy, just absolute 150-proof joy where they're just up there dancing, just dancing. So there's a way. What, not so much what does it do, what does it say, or what does it mean, but what does it do? And so let's get to the word now. Um, looking at um, at Luke 13, 14, 15. Oh, a bridge to, um, to today. Um, illustration today is going to be one of Flannery O'Connor's stories called um, Good Country People. 
thinking about not so much what it does uh, or what it says, but what it does. Flannery O'Connor once said, speaking about being a Christian writer, um, especially in 1950s, growing up in the South and as a as a as a Catholic woman of all things, uh, just kind of being lost and least. You know, that's pretty low on the pecking order. Um, a Southern Catholic, uh, especially a female, trying to have something to say about grace and holding, you know. Christ and his word up, you know, in a pretty strong way. You know, that's that didn't really fit. There's a whole lot of left-handedness in, 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 in her world. And she said this once, speaking of being a Christian writer, uh, a writer may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across to this hostile audience. I doubt this happened, but uh, whoever wrote the screenplay for Little Miss Sunshine could easily have read this and thought, I'm going to do that. Um, uh, to get your vision, to have to, uh, you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the heart of hearing, remember those that don't have ears to hear, they can't hear. Those that don't have eyes to see, they can't see. So let those who have ears hear and let those who have eyes to see, see. She's picking up on that. Um, Flannery O'Connor's making a riff off of that when he says, to the heart of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. <laughs> And so you have Alan Arkin, or whatever his name is, and you have that little girl named Olive Peace, you know, Olive Branch, um, the instrument of peace, by her stripes will be healed. I mean, it's just like she, he lifted this out and put it right in there. So Olive comes dancing appropriately, inappropriately, and somehow finds this redemptive word. We find the same themes now in this part of Luke. Luke's like on it. He, he can't not not do this. And he's got all these parties that start going on in Luke 13, 14, and 15. Whether he's... Um, you can turn to it if you want, just a summary until we get to the to, to Luke um, 15. Uh, he throws a party at a at a on a Sabbath, which is a big no-no, at a Pharisee's house, and he invites uh, a man with dropsy to come in and be healed. Um, another party, it's a wedding party, uh, where he gives us the instruction: when you go into a party like that, don't take the seat of honor, because they're going to come in and say, "Hey, you don't belong there. Bump down." But take the last seat. Um, and then you'll be raised up for to be first. Uh, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Um, and he starts turning it around in this paradoxical way. Or oh, the great banquet or the great party where you don't invite to the quid pro quo, to this for that, where he invited all of his friends and neighbors to the wedding, which is what you and I do, of course. Um, the uh, And everybody says, I can't come. I just bought a piece of property, or my dad's sick. i got to go. And everybody had perfectly reasonable excuses. And then the party thrower gets really mad, and he says, go out you know, to the highways and the hedgerows, and, uh, as the King James called it, and, uh, and empty them and fill it up. And, and the, the servant said, I did that, and there's still room. It's like, you know, you know, go get, the, go get the, the blind and the crippled and the lame, and all those who were invited first uh, will have no part of this. And you're just like, oh, this is an awful word. And it's a difficult word. It's left-handed power where somehow you recognize all God wants to say is, I work well with people who are losers. I work well with those who are least. I work well with those who are dead and forgotten. And he just jumps on to something else and he's like, crap. Um, and he goes to the lost sheep and the lost coin, which we're going to look at today. So let me, uh, let me hit pause. Any comments there before we, we dive into the text and look a little bit at good country people? Long introduction, but that was actually planned. Um, not, not behind. So any, any comments or thoughts? Just one little thing about that quip about hospitals and courtrooms. Yeah. How it includes the delivery room. Uh, pretty close. 
especially if just a little bit happens. Um, uh, not quite according to plan. No, I mean, yeah. no, I didn't read it that way. Oh. I mean, the beginning, the beginning as well as. That's fair. Very fair. Yeah. 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 That's good. The comment about the lady, the young girl in the beauty contest—is that is that is that part of the lesson? Is that true? Is that true story? That's true. It was a movie that we watched last week. A movie clip. From YouTube, um, I watched it this morning, but yeah. I had not. I, I listened last week. You can just YouTube Little Miss Sunshine. What would it, it would be? Dance, 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 or something like yeah, that. Yeah. You can watch it. I think if you Google Little Miss Sunshine, that's the first thing that will come up. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's not a story for purposes of entertainment. It actually happens. No, no, no. No, it's a, it's fiction. It's fiction. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, let's think of this. Um, uh, start at the back end. Turn my notes here. Uh, just to kind of climb into it. Look at the last few verses of Luke 13 and the first few verses of Luke 15. That's where I'm going to be. So, Luke 13, uh, 31 to 35. At that very hour, so he's speaking very precisely. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him, Jesus, and said, "Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you." And he, Jesus, said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish apart from, away from Jerusalem. And he turns inward and he starts speaking, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together? as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, there's that word, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So just a quick comment here, which sets up the parties before the, the party, um, the, uh, the several party scenes before the, uh, the party that the father throws for the son who wished him dead, which we'll look at next week, the prodigal son. He, uh, there's a lot to say, which I won't say, about the Pharisees and this interesting interchange with the Pharisees about Herod. Go tell that fox, and I have to finish my course. It's that same word, to tell us die, or it's from the same root, um, uh, which is it is finished when he speaks on the cross, his last word from the cross, that I've got to, to do this, to die. It's all the times he speaks in this manner. He's speaking of his own death. Death is always on Jesus's mind. He came into the world to die. Um, and he says all this sort of right-handed language um, about what he has to do. And then he goes sort of inward in this way where he starts to exude this compassion for the people who are going to kill him. Because Jerusalem knows, in other words, it's you and me. We know right-handed power really well. Um, we kill prophets and we stone those who are sent to it. Um, uh, let me execute and, and, and kill people. That's that's what we do with people who aren't helpful to me. Whether that's you know a spiritual killing, or you can get all there if you want to. We just we cut them out. I, I, I get them away from me, um, or I take their very life uh, in whatever way you want to do it, physically, uh, or their life in the office, or undercut who they are in a, in a certain way in a relationship. Whatever way you want to read that. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. 
So right-handed power isn't going to work. Um, I would have done this, but you wouldn't come. So behold, the word that says verily, verily, truly, truly, you know, mark this. Your house is forsaken. Your house is forgotten. You have forgotten yourself. You don't know yourself. And that's going to be a strong bridge to Flannery O'Connor. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which is, of course, the echo of of Jesus on Palm Sunday. That's the that's the word from the Psalms, which, which we'll all cry out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, but not in the way that we presume. So the whole question is going to be, how do we see him coming? Because if the right hand isn't going to do it, how is God's left hand going to open our eyes and unstop our ears so that we behold him? So, with that, Luke 15, rightfully one of the great chapters in the scriptures. I mean, it's just worth read, marking, learning, and inwardly digesting again and again and again. The three parables of lostness and leastness and death. Um, the parable of the lost uh, sheep and then the lost coin and then the lost sons, plural, really. The older son and the younger son who are equally lost. We'll look part one this week. Uh, verses one through ten. And now the tax collectors and sinners, in other words, the losers, uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the winners, uh, grumbled, saying, This man receives the sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Punchline. We'll start at the end and we'll go back to the beginning. There is joy over one sinner who repents. And so repentance is going to be the um, not-so-subtle subtext. It's going to move from the end to the forefront here pretty quickly. What does it mean to repent? This is what I taught this last fall. In fact, now that I'm remembering that. Um, uh, Jesus told them this parable, a parable about a hundred sheep. One of them goes away um, uh, and, and uh, is lost, and 99 are left behind. If this is a story about effective sheep herding, this is not a very good instruction manual. Um, <laughs> collateral damage of, uh, of 1% in, in shipping, for I would think, and I'm not much of an agrarian, uh, first century agrarian, you know, uh, uh, or sheep sh shepherd, in case you didn't know that, I just want to let you know. I would think that's pretty good, pretty good odds. I brought 99 of them in. Um, but this is a bizarre shepherd. Um, he seems to delight. It's almost as if he's sitting around saying, you know, gosh, 99 never strayed. 99 are doing all the right things. 99 are just where they're supposed to be, minding their P's and Q's, doing everything they're supposed to be. If you're sort of hearing the older brother next week, you're in good, you're in good place. 
But when one of them finally is lost, or when one of them finally goes astray, as it's described in Matthew, it's as if he wakes up and he says, ah, finally, the thing I've been given to do, to go and to seek out the lost. And he gets excited. And the shepherd leaves the 99 in the open country, it says, or I think the RSV calls it the desert, the the desolate place, the unguarded place, uh, uh, to go find the one. Pause. If you've got 99 sheep and they're in the desert, the open place, the unguarded place, and you leave them to go find the one, what's going to happen to the 99? It's as if he likes that. He wants, he's like, oh good, if I leave now, like they'll all be lost and I get to do this all over again like 99 more times. That's reading into the text. But it's almost, it's right there. It's right in front of us. It's like it's his joy. Oh yeah, that's what it says. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over this one sinner who repents. Wait a minute. The sinner who repents. What? What? A lost sheep is what kind of sheep? For all practical purposes, it's dead. A lost coin, what value is that? It's a dead asset. You write it off. It's gone. Until you're in relationship to it, until something happens, it has no value. It has no worth. You, you lose a penny or you lose a whole treasure chest full of gold bullion at the bottom of the ocean. You know, it, you, you may, it may bother you. Um, and so it's still got that worth as long as you've got it in your mind that it's out there. But as soon as it's gone, when you're no longer in relationship to it, it has no worth. It has no value. It's a dead asset. Um, it's a dead sheep. The, uh, the lost son is a deadbeat. Um, they're gone. Until the one who cares puts himself in relationship to it and begins to seek it out. And then it becomes very precious and it has a measurable value. So here's the funny thing about repentance. Uh, if I tell this dollar in my pocket to repent, what's it going to do? <laughs> Not a darn thing. <laughs> uh, coin, repent and believe. Cheap, repent and believe. It can't do it. When does a coin repent? When it is found, when it is picked up, when it's held near, and when it's valued. When does a sheep repent? when it's lost, but the shepherd goes out and it's found and it's picked up and it's put on his shoulders and it's carried back. Truly, truly, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. The angels will rejoice when one of these coins is repented and when the sheep is repented. And so when you hear this word, when we hear this word repent, it's not our action. Um, as James Nestigan, I heard this yesterday in a different thing. He's a Lutheran theologian that I like. He said, as if this idea that repentance is our actional, our decisional, uh, 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 it's this thing that we decide to do, it's just as if your spouse kind of pulls you close and she says, kiss me. And I tell Maymay, um, hold on just a minute. Let me, let me think about this. Um, it's <laughs> a bad idea. <laughs> um, in fact, it's just it's ludicrous. You know, you get in the right place and it's like, no, it's, it's just it's, it's, it's English words that make no sense. Um, to, uh, to tell a coin to repent, a sheep to repent, to tell a sinner, to one who is dead in their trespasses and sins to repent, it, 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 it makes no sense. But to be repented, 
where they're acted upon, where they're sought after, and they're picked up, and they're carried, and they're valued, and they're brought back in. Those who are far off have been brought near. Those who were not loved are now loved. Now, something new is happening. Somebody's coming to their senses. So, here's the way um, to a bridge to, uh, to this Flannery O'Connor story. Um, repentance, uh, uh, I won't go into this long, but uh, one way to define repentance, and this came out of the 16th century in the Reformation, is to say less an activity, because that was the whole, I won't go there, is to, just coming to your senses, you know, an awakening. So next week when we have the prodigal son, uh, I think it's Luke 15:17, where he says, and then coming to his senses after the law had done its work, right-handed power, and he's eating, you know, pig food as a good Jewish boy. That's pretty low. Um, you don't even associate with pigs, but then eat their food. You're lower than the forbidden animal. Uh, coming to his senses, where he finally has, behold, I see who I am, and I see how far off, how dead I am, and he hatches this little plan. We'll look at that next week. Repentance is coming to your senses. So Flannery O'Connor has this really interesting story called um, Good Country People. Like she does with a lot of her stories, she sets it up where uh, a lot of self-indulgent, self-satisfied, blind uh, to their own superiority um, in 1950s South, say Georgia, I think is probably where this one is. Um, uh, It's the Hopewells, and they have a daughter named joy so it's interesting that's her name but as soon as she was able to well she was a she was shot in a hunting accident when she was 10 years old and she lost her leg but it had a wooden prosthesis pro prosthesis put on she had a wooden leg i'll say that now instead of that word um for the rest of her life and she was never sort of accepted and pushed aside and then she went off to germany and she got a phd in heidegg uh in in, in martin heidegger she went heideggerian uh in philosophy and so just totally salvation via the mind, and this Bible salesman comes around, um, knocks on the door. Um, you want to come on in? No, we don't need a Bible. Ours is upstairs. It's not true. It's in the attic and all that stuff. And he's, why don't you stay for dinner because we're nice southern people, and you're good country people, aren't you? And he's, I guess, ma'am, I certainly am. You need a Bible. He's like, no, we're not going to have that. Anyway, he kind of makes a play on Joy, who changed her name to Holga, just because she wanted to make it the most ugly name that she could possibly imagine. That's what Flannery Flann- O'Connor's names are always great. Um, fast forward, all this is in 20 pages. Last few pages, um, they meet the next morning at 10, and they go on a picnic. Um, but they don't take any food, so you know what's going to happen, or at least what the, uh, what the setup is supposed to be. Uh, and he gets her to go up into a hayloft with her, and he sees her through uh, into the thing that she most values. It's not her virginity. As one writer said, Ralph Wood said, it wasn't going to penetrate her soul by stealing her virginity, but he was going to penetrate her soul by stealing the icon of her own self-centered faith, her wooden leg. So here's, remember what she said, and we're taking also what's uh, the Little Miss Sunshine. To the heart of hearing, you sometimes need to shout. And to the heart of seeing, people that don't see well, you sometimes have to draw large and startling figures. So what has Flannery O'Connor done? She set up a door-to-door Bible salesman who, in fact, is an evil man who goes around preying on women to take the thing uh, uh, that means the most to him, not sexually, 
But as he says later, I once got a glass eye doing the same thing. And he gets her to take off her wooden leg and leaves her there, just absolutely vulnerable and dependent. Takes her glasses. There's a symbolism. Remember, she can't see with her glasses on because she had all the self-security uh, and had her leg because she had her wooden leg. So she had all the self-security. I can get up and I can walk. But he took her glasses and he put them in her pocket. She can no longer see. And she took her leg and he threw it in his Bible case. She can no longer walk. And now for the first time in the story, as he jumps out of the hayloft, leaving her blind and immobile, and runs away saying, I ain't believed a thing since I was first born. She's left there in the hayloft, just start, vulnerable, dependent, as she earlier said. I'd read some of it, but we're out of time. Uh, just just uh, vulnerable, lost, uh, a dead asset, uh, a lost coin, a, uh, a younger brother who came to his senses, and the irony of the left-handed work when she took off her glasses and she lost her leg, finally she could see things clearly and she knew that she couldn't do a thing about it because she couldn't walk um, now without her leg. And the story leaves off tonic, but you start to think, in fact, Joy, no longer Holga, Hopewell is her last name, a well of hope. The hope may yet well up in her. She might actually now have some hope at redemption because before she was lost. She was completely reprobate in her own self-security. So, good country people. I'll leave that to you. It's 20 pages. All of Flannery O'Connor's. All, they're all in public domain now, so you can just Google it. Say Flannery PDF. If you want to read a good short story, it's the best short story I know. It's about a Bible salesman who steals wooden legs. Um, <laughs> this is the one to go to. Um, uh, and it's it's one of her unusual ones because it's, anyway, it's, just, it's an odd one. Um, so I'll leave that with that image that somehow uh, even a, uh, a dark, door-to-door, greasy, slimy Bible salesman becomes the instrument of grace, the devastating instrument of grace in God's left-handed work to save Holga and restore hope to joy. Um, thoughts? Comments? You know, um I remember reading that a few years ago and just laughing out loud because she points out that the daughter actually chose the name Holger. Yeah. Just the ugliest name she could yep. think of. Yep. And, and isn't that a picture of what we are in our bitterness, in our just, just totally. bitter yep. is what describes joy yep. so well. Amen. It's a great word, Carrie. Thinking of when Jesus goes to the invalid, he's been, you know, Immobile for what, 27 years? First question is, do you want to get well? <laughs> and it's like, why would he ask that? Oh, yeah, I forgot. We're all idiots. We're dumb sheep with black hearts. We, we actually choose bitterness over, uh, over joy. We choose names. She, forgive me if anybody's mother is named Holger or something like that. <laughs> Flannery O'Connor said, I took, it just came to me. I took huge and ugly and I made Holga. That's how she said she made up the name because she made up all these great names. Um, and just, just chose just an ugly name, the opposite of Joy Hopewell, and she came up with Holga. And it was it's a redemptive story. But you gotta you gotta go there two or three times as I've read it and I was like, How is that an instrument of grace? And I was like, Okay, wait, I'm starting to see it now. I'm starting to see it now. So well, let me pray. It's time to go. Lord, um,
speak uh, in a way that, uh, for, for those of us that don't see uh, or don't hear, speak uh, loudly and, and, and draw figures, large and startling figures, to, to shake us from our stupor, to restore life, in fact, to those of us, to all of us, as we are dead in our trespasses and sins, so that we would see your redemptive grace, um, even in the most forsaken places. Uh, give us those eyes to see um, this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.